On July 21, 1972, 17-year-old Pamela Wells and 18-year-old Nancy Trotter were hitchhiking on the highway near a beach. A police officer picked them up, telling them that it was illegal to hitchhike in Martin County, and warned them of the dangers of hitchhiking. From this encounter, he learned that both girls were not native to Florida. The girls really wanted to visit Jensen Beach, so they made plans to try going there the next day, as he drove them to a halfway house where they were staying. Instead of finishing the interaction there, the officer told the girls that he would pick them up and bring them to the beach the next morning when he was off duty. The girls agreed. I mean, who wouldn't trust a cop, right? They are there to serve and protect. The next morning at 9.15 a.m., the girls met the off-duty cop at the bandstand. He showed up as promised, except the girls became a little hesitant at first because he was not wearing his uniform and driving his own car. He told the girls that he was still on duty, but he needed to switch into plain clothes for undercover duties, which is why he was driving an unmarked vehicle. Both girls ignored their gut instinct and took him for his word. However, he didn't bring them to the beach. The cop told them that he wanted them to see an old Spanish fort near Hutchinson Island. While still driving to this destination, he continued to tell both girls about how dangerous it is to accept lifts from random strangers and how they could potentially be sold into white slavery. When they arrived in front of a dilapidated shed deep inside a forest, he started making sexual remarks to Pamela and Nancy. Then he drew a gun on them and bound and gagged them. He took one of the victims to a large cypress tree where he tied her legs just below the knees to the trunk and then binding a noose around her neck. She stood balancing on a tree root to keep the pressure off of her neck. Then he did the same thing to the other victim at another tree a short distance away from the first. Again, this victim also had to stand on an exposed tree root to counter the pressure of the noose around her throat. He then informed both girls that he was going to rape and murder them. Just at that moment, the police officer received an urgent radio dispatch which required him to go to the station. He told them both that he would be back shortly and not to try escaping because he was only going to be just down the road. Luckily, Pamela escaped, flagging down a truck whose occupant brought her to the police station. Nancy also managed to flag down a police car roughly 45 minutes after Pamela made it to the station. Both girls had no problem identifying their assailant because Gerard John Schaefer Jr had told them his name, but it wouldn't be until after this arrest that all of his previous victims' bodies would be found. A serial killer to which investigators still are not sure just how many people he actually murdered. Welcome to another episode of Crimson Sin with Tamsin Lee. I am your host, Tamsin Lee. Full show notes and sources can be found at TamsonLeeCrimsonSin.Podbean.com 
As always, if there are any details missing or have been overlooked, please feel free to add them or correct them in the comments. I value all input from my Crimson Sinners. Thank you for listening and your support. This episode contains disturbing scenarios, so if you are sensitive to the topic of sexual assault, please do not listen any further. If you are currently experiencing this, please know that there are people and organizations that can help you. You can call the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 800-656-4673 or visit online.rainn.org. You can also find these resources in today's show notes. Today's case is about Gerard John Schaefer Jr., also known as the Killer Cop, the Hangman, and the Butcher of Blind Creek. After researching his history, I thought his career choices were interesting, if not unusual. Yet knowing his criminal history, the choices also seem pretty spot on. So let me know what you think in the comments. Born on March 25, 1946, Gerard Schaefer was raised in Nina, Wisconsin. He was the first of three children for Gerard and Doris Schaefer. Schaefer Jr. would later call himself the illegitimate product of his parents' shotgun wedding. He also claimed that his family life at the time was turbulent and conflictual and described his parents as not having a good relationship. He seemed to also have a negative relationship with his parents, as he claimed that his father was always critical and his mother was always on his back to do better, which I don't think this is a bad thing that his mother wanted him to do. It is something every parent tries to make their children strive for, but I guess there are good and bad ways of showing this and maybe he saw his mother's attempts negatively. Well, Junior felt that his childhood was troubled due to the family's frequent relocations, his father's alcoholism, adultery, and constant verbal abuse towards his wife and children. His father was a traveling salesman while his mother was a homemaker. Because his father was a traveling salesman, he was frequently absent from home. However, when he was home, he did not get along with his eldest child. Junior also believed that his father favored his sister over himself and his brother. He also claimed to be closer to his mother, who was described to be overly protective of her children. From Wisconsin, the family moved to Nashville, Tennessee, then to Atlanta, Georgia, where Gerard Jr. attended Marist Academy, which was a Catholic school. Many on the outside would describe his life at this point in time as idyllic, but Schaefer felt otherwise. Because his father appeared to favor Sarah, which is his little sister, it made him wish he was a girl. This made him have thoughts of suicide. When he played games outside, he would always be the one killed because he really wanted to be dead. He once said, I always got killed. I wanted to die. My father favored my sister, so I wanted to be a girl. I wanted to die. 
I was such a disappointment to my family as a kid, to my father. Loved my sister. I couldn't please my father, so in playing games, I wanted to be killed. Schaefer admitted that he had a large preoccupation with death, sometimes reaching the point where he didn't know what was fact and what was fantasy. By the time he was 12 years old, he discovered women's panties and began masturbating while wearing them. This is also around the time he started practicing bondage and sadomasochism. Schaefer developed erotic fantasies of hurting women who he deemed worthy of his contempt. He derived pleasure from inflicting pain upon himself, occasionally wearing women's underwear, until he achieved orgasm through autoerotic asphyxiation. Generally, these sadomasochistic rituals involved Schaefer tying himself to a tree in rural locations. These fantasies would increase in terms of frequency and intensity with time, slowly but surely dominating many of his waking hours. The Schaefer family moved to Fort Lauderdale, Florida in 1960, where they joined a yacht and country club. Gerard Jr. met his first steady girlfriend, Cindy, when he was 14. They were together for the next three years. During this time, Schaefer stopped going out into the woods and playing his bondage games as he was receiving this gratification from Cindy. Allegedly, Cindy was the one in the relationship who wouldn't perform intimately unless it was scripted scenarios involving Schaefer ripping her clothes off and, quote, raping her. In 1964, it was reported that Schaefer had enough of their deviant intimacy, so Cindy broke up with him. On the day of the breakup, he went back into the forest to play his bondage games by himself. According to yearbooks from St. Thomas Aquinas High School, Schaefer was listed as a member of the football team in his sophomore and junior years, but no one remembers him playing or joining in any other group. Classmates remember him as a loner, mostly labeled as weird and out of it. One such classmate noted that Schaefer did not seem to hang out with the guys, appearing to always be on the outside looking in, and would practically stand on his head to see up a girl's skirt. In class, he often angered the nuns by questioning religious dogma, He once wrote a long essay scientifically challenging the virgin birth of Christ. Schaefer is noted as having outdoor pursuits since he was young. By adolescence, he developed an interest in nature. His interests included collecting guns, hunting, and fishing, which is something him and his father occasionally participated in together but he especially enjoyed hunting in the Everglades. A neighbor named Gary Hainlin once recalled that Schaefer wouldn't shoot anything you could eat. He would shoot things such as songbirds or land crabs. He recalls that Schaefer would also play tennis with his sister, Lee Hainlin, from time to time. There were conflicting reports on whether the two dated, 
This is around the time when Schaefer began his pursuit as a peeping Tom, especially when it came to Lee. He accused her of taunting him because she would undress in front of the window without the curtains drawn. He sometimes crept around her house at night, masturbating, while he watched her undress. However, she was not his only female target during this period. He blamed all of these women for taunting him and referred to them as sluts and whores. Schaefer met 17-year-old Sandy Stewart at a school dance in the spring of 1964. Stewart described him as a dazzling young stranger who swept her away. He became her first lover as she found him to be a sensitive and enthusiastic lover who was eager to please. Schaefer graduated in June 1964, but the romance between the two lovers continued. The entire time he managed to impress her family with his impeccable manners, he traveled with Sandy's family and even became a fixture at their home. For the first time, his life seemed great, as it should be. It was all a charade. Even though he was in a relationship with Sandy, he considered joining the priesthood. He applied to St. John's Seminary, but was rejected. Schiffer recalled the incident, stating, They said I didn't have enough faith. I didn't think it was fair. But after years of daily mass attendance, Schaefer decided that he had been under a certain Catholic mind control thing and soon abandoned the church. In September 1964, he began his studies at Broward Community College. However, he spent more time hunting in the Everglades. Even his relationship with Sandy became more like therapy sessions for him. He would angrily and tearfully reveal to Sandy his urge to kill the women who aroused him, such as Lee Hanlon, who stripped in front of her bedroom window, or how another would dare sunbathe in her own backyard. Sandy would even witness violent conflicts between Schaefer and his father, she also listened to his stories about his previous girlfriend, Cindy, and her rape games. Eventually, Sandy decided she had had enough and ended the relationship. But Schaefer still wanted her. He stalked her while she dated other men. But he finally decided to give up, which was probably a very good thing for her. Because he didn't have Sandy anymore, he finally confessed his homicidal urges to his creative writing teacher at college. His teacher referred him to the college's counselor, Dr. Neil Crispo. Schaefer told him that he wanted to join the army because he would like to kill things. He even confessed to enjoying shooting at cows. But there was more to it than just shooting cows. He started to kill livestock, beheading the animals with a machete, and then raping their carcasses. Graduating with an associate degree in business administration, Schaefer then entered Florida Atlantic University in January 1968 to obtain a teaching certificate. However, his grades failed to support a student deferment, and he was soon ordered to report for his Army physical in April of 1968. 
Instead of showing up for his physical, he fled after leaving a suicide note in his dorm room. Which is odd, because he had told his counselor he wanted to join the army. So now he had the chance to go into the army. I mean, yeah, it was kind of against his will since it was being drafted, but he said he would like to go. Anyway, Schaefer was referred for emergency psychiatric testing by Dr. Raymond Killinger on May 17, 1968. The testing revealed that his psychological disorganization is severe with his frustration level low, and he had no suicidal urges. He made claims about being a cross-dresser to avoid the draft, but he also stated that he was very open about his cross-dressing, though no one at the university remembers ever seeing him dress in women's clothing. However, he still managed to beat the draft for mental, moral, or physical reasons. This is also around the time his parents' 22-year marriage was crumbling. Gerard Sr. drank heavily for years and saw numerous other women while still married. He lost his sales job in May 1968, making an already bad situation worse. By July 2nd, Doris filed for divorce and Sr. moved out. In response, Schaefer Jr. quickly quit his construction job and went on a hunting trip to Michigan. Later, he returned to Florida with Martha Fogg and news of their engagement. The two married in December 1968. The pair moved in with Schaefer's mother and started attending Florida Atlantic University in January 1969. In February 1969, he was assigned as a student teacher at Plantation High School, teaching geography, but soon began trouble. Staff members at the high school became alarmed as Schaefer persistently imposed his moral and political views on students. The school was stormed by complaints by parents about the student teacher. The principal of Plantation High School removed Schaefer a few weeks later on November 1st, stating that his behavior was entirely inappropriate. Soon after this incident, he applied for a student teaching position at Boca Raton Community High School, but was unsuccessful. Schaefer was jobless for several months, spending most of his time in the Everglades or at his mother's house. He was upset as his failure to become a priest and a teacher. During this time, Schaefer convinced himself that indecent women and prostitutes should be destroyed for the welfare of society. On August 21st, 1969, former neighbor Lee Hanlon married Charles Bonatis. I don't know if I'm saying his last name right, so I'm sorry if I said it wrong. Not too unusually, the couple had a rocky marriage at first, with frequent arguments. But one thing they continually fought about was Lee telling her husband that her childhood neighbor and sometimes tennis partner had offered her a $20,000 salary to join the CIA. Charles laughed at it and told her to forget about it. It is unclear whether he thought it was nonsense from the start or if he genuinely didn't want to hear her take the supposed job. But on September 8th, Charles came home to find a note from Lee, stating that she left for Miami. She never 
returned. Later, her car was found in a Fort Lauderdale parking lot. Lee's brother called Schaefer and heard a strange story from him. Schaefer claimed that Lee had called him to say that she was leaving Charles and asked him for a ride to the airport, where she said she would catch a flight to Cincinnati. Schaefer said that he agreed to bring her, and she said she would call him back with the departure time, but she never called him back. So Charles, Lee's husband, filed for a divorce on October 6th. On March 10th, 1970, his petition was granted. No one had ever heard from her again. Schaefer decided to try student teaching again, so FAU administrators placed him at Stranahan High School, where he taught geography. It was indicated that Schaefer performed poorly in this position. His superiors noted that he was very arrogant and had very limited knowledge about the subject he was teaching. The principal at Stranahan High School informed Schaefer of the decision to withdraw him from the internship and removed him on November 11, 1969. His supervisor, Richard Goodhart, later reported telling Schaefer, he'd better never let me hear of his trying to get a job with any authority over people, or I'd do anything I could to prevent it. Before we get into the story any further, I want to clarify something with these dates because I want to be honest with my listeners. So during my research, literally every article had a different date detailing when he was employed as a student teacher at these schools. So the years in which he was working remained the same, but the months and days frequently changed from article to article. So I try to compose what I found the best I could within the time frame of when the victims went missing. If the dates aren't accurate, I apologize, but I could only work with what I found. So if you know the actual dates, so if you know the actual dates of when he was employed as a student teacher at these schools, please write them in the comments. I'm not ashamed to be proven wrong in my research and what I'm telling my Crimson Centers, so please feel free to correct any mistakes I have made. But what we do know is that while Schaefer was still employed as a student teacher, a 22-year-old cocktail waitress named Carmen Marie Hollick called her sister-in-law on December 18, 1969, to tell her that she had an appointment made with a male teacher from a local junior college that evening. She had told her sister-in-law that the teacher claimed to do undercover work for the government and could possibly have an employment opportunity for her. He told her that this opportunity would include international travel and a high salary. Carmen was said to have purchased a pair of black leather high heel shoes and planned on wearing them with a black cocktail dress to this meeting. On Christmas Day, Carmen's sister-in-law decided to go to her apartment since she hadn't heard from her since their conversation over the phone. Carmen's car keys, driver's license, and vehicle registration were missing. Also missing were the black cocktail dress and the new black high-heeled shoes she claimed to have worn that night. Her family also discovered that her dog was unfed and the bathtub filled. A few days later, her car was found abandoned in a parking lot and Carmen was still missing. 
In March 1970, Schaefer petitioned FAU administrators to change his withdrawal to incomplete so he could resume his studies. The administrators allowed this and he became a full-time student with his wife. But his relationship with his wife began to deteriorate. By May 2nd, Martha filed for divorce, citing extreme cruelty. After the divorce, he vacationed in Europe and North America, which is something to remember for later. By October 1970, Schaefer worked as a security guard at Florida Light and Power to make tuition money. This is where he met Teresa Dean. They soon became engaged and married after Schaefer graduated from FAU in August of 1971. He earned a bachelor's degree in geography that was deemed useless without a teaching credential. However, Schaefer had chosen a new career path at this point. Because he failed at becoming a priest and failed to become a teacher, he decided to set his sights on law enforcement. He applied to several police departments, but was rejected by many of them because he failed the psychological test. On September 3, 1971, he was hired by the Wilton Manors Police Department and sent to Broward Community College to attend the school's police academy. He graduated on December 17, 1971, and soon began his six-month probationary term as a patrolman. He was at his new job for barely three weeks before another local woman disappeared. Belinda Hutchins was also a 22-year-old cocktail waitress who was married to a drug addict. She reportedly was not shy about flaunting her extramarital affairs. According to her husband, she had her own lifestyle and did what she wanted to do. Hutchins was arrested for prostitution in November 1970 and had to pay a $250 fine. Reportedly, on January 5, 1972, the last time her husband and two-year-old daughter saw Hutchins, she climbed into a blue Datsun sedan with a strange man. No one had heard from her since that day. Just like in his other career choices, Schaefer proved himself to be poorly suited for police work. Chief Bernard Scott told reporters, he used poor judgment, did dumb things. I didn't want him around. Colleagues called Schaefer badge happy, obsessed with writing traffic tickets. Ex-FBI agent Robert Ressler claimed Schaefer stopped young women and asked them for dates. He was also accused of calling up women for dates after obtaining their personal information using the department's computer. Chief Scott was ready to fire Schaefer on March 16, 1972, but Schaefer surprised him by winning a commendation for a drug arrest. This act briefly saved his job, and his dumb mistakes continued. On April 19th, Scott called him in to fire him. Schaefer begged for another chance, almost with tears in his eyes. Scott decided to give him another chance, but the next day, Scott learned that Schaefer had applied for a job with the Broward County Sheriff's Department, and he fired Schaefer on the spot. 
Schaefer failed the psychological test for Broward County Sheriff's Department and was rejected. However, Chief Scott would receive phone calls about applications from many other police departments, which Scott would tell them, I would put on a uniform and walk the streets myself before I would have him back. Schaefer was eventually hired on June 30th, 1972, by Sheriff Richard Crowder in Martin County. He came with a glowing letter of recommendation from Chief Bernard Scott of the Wilton Manors PD, which sounds strange, considering the statement Scott just provided, right? But it was only a month later when Schaefer was charged for false imprisonment of Pamela Wells and Nancy Trotter, the girls whose story I described at the beginning of this episode, that Crowder checked the letter out and learned it was forged. After the girls escaped from being bound and gagged with a noose around their necks, Schaefer returned after being away on an important call for two hours. When he came back to finish the disgusting deed he set out to do, he found that they had escaped. He immediately called the station, claiming he did something foolish. He further explained that he had pretended to kidnap and threatened to kill two hitchhikers in order to scare them into avoiding such an irresponsible method of travel. Luckily, Schaefer's boss did not believe him and ordered Schaefer to the station where he stripped him of his badge and charged him with false imprisonment and assault. But this is only the beginning of the skeleton's hiding in his closet. Nearly two weeks after his arrest, he posted a $15,000 bail, so he was able to walk around freely until his scheduled trial in November of 1972. After posting bail, he returned to the house he rented with his wife in Stewart, Florida. His wife and in-laws noted that there seemed to be no change in his demeanor, and they believed him when he said that he was merely just trying to teach the hitchhikers a lesson. 17-year-old Susan Place and 16-year-old Georgia Jessup met Schaefer at an adult education center in Fort Lauderdale. Schaefer introduced himself as Jerry Shepard to the friends and told them that he was from Colorado, also stating that he planned to return there after a trip to Mexico. It is speculated that he pretended to be interested in the same topics and music as the friends in order to gain their trust. In the afternoon on September 27, 1972, Susan's mother Lucille arrived home to find her daughter straightening her room. While Georgia sat on a chair in the bedroom, her daughter and Georgia introduced Lucille to a man who appeared to be in his 20s named Jerry. Susan told her mother that Georgia and Jerry were going to travel from Fort Lauderdale to the beach to play guitar. Lucille was suspicious, but Jerry assured her his intentions were noble. Still, there was something unsettling in the mother's gut, so she noted the number of his 1969 Datsun. Susan told her mother she would only be gone for a little while and would remain in contact. The girls left with Schaefer at roughly 8.45 p.m. Lucille contacted George's mother, Shirley, when she hadn't heard from her daughter in four days. Shirley told Lucille that Georgia ran away on September 27th and had not heard anything from her 
or Susan since. Both girls were then reported missing to the Oakland Park Police. Lucille was able to provide the investigators with the vehicle registration she noted as well as a physical description of the man they had left with. However, the registration was traced to an entirely separate model of vehicle which belonged to a resident of St. Petersburg and whom did not resemble Jerry Shepard at all. The person also had a strong alibi for the date that the girls disappeared. The only person who was registered as living in Fort Lauderdale with the name Jerry Shepard was also eliminated from police inquiries. By early 1973, the teenager's disappearance had become a cold case. On October 23, 1972, 14-year-old Mary Briscolina and 13-year-old Elsie Farmer were hitchhiking to a commercial boulevard restaurant from a Lauderdale-by-the-Sea motel when they suddenly vanished. Their bodies were later recovered on separate dates early the following year in undergrowth near Sunrise Boulevard with their legs spread apart. Mary appeared to have been beaten extensively on her head, with one blow proving to be fatal. It was also found that several of her fingernails had been torn from her body, which indicated a great physical struggle with the perpetrator. Elsie was also found to have been bludgeoned to death. Investigators questioned Mary's friends, who claimed that Mary and Elsie would frequently visit a Lauderdale-by-the-Sea apartment, which was rented by a boyfriend of Mary's older sister. They also found that Mary knew of an acquaintance named Gary Shepard. Many identified Gary Shepard as Schaefer, who also claimed that he was an ex-Wilton Manors police officer. Schaefer appeared in court for the Trotter Wells abduction in December 1972. His attorney urged him to take a plea deal. He pled guilty to one charge of aggravated assault, for which he received a sentence of one year in jail with the possibility of parole after six months, to be followed by three years probation. Leaving court, Schaefer told the media that he made a stupid mistake and that there was no sex involved, and no one was hurt. But he didn't begin serving his sentence until January 15, 1973. Before serving his sentence, 19-year-olds Colette Goodenough and Barbara Wilcox disappeared while hitchhiking from Sioux City, Iowa, to Florida. Both women were last seen alive in Biloxi, Mississippi. Shortly before Goodenough and Wilcox's disappearance, it was reported that Schaefer made a long-distance phone call from Cedar Rapids, Iowa to his Florida residence. This led investigators to believe that he may have encountered the two while returning to Florida. While Schaefer sat in prison for the assault of Trotter and Wells, in March 1973, Lucille Place was still searching for her teenage daughter. While searching her bedroom, she found a letter written by Jerry Shepard. 
The mother drove to the return address to discover from the building manager that the property was registered under Gerard Schaefer. The manager even went on to tell the worried mother that he was sent to jail for the abduction and attempted hanging of two girls. Lucille and her husband drove around the county and realized she may have noted Schaefer's license plate number incorrectly. She brought this information to the police and discovered that the plate had indeed belonged to a Dotson owned by Schaefer. Gerard was questioned about the incident but denied encountering Place or her parents. However, Lucille positively identified a Wilton Manor's personnel photograph of Schaefer as Jerry Shepard. A month later, a father and son were out searching for discarded aluminum cans when they stumbled upon the extensively decomposed remains of two individuals scattered within and around a hole dug among trees. Deep scratch marks were found upon the base of the tree beside the gravesite, where sections of a torso had been bound to the base of the trunk. One victim wore what remained of a pair of blue jeans with a circular emblem of the road runner. The other victims appeared to have been completely nude, and a pile of clothing belonging to the deceased was found in some nearby undergrowth. The remains appeared to be disinterred and scattered by wildlife, and the location of these discoveries was approximately six miles from where Trotter and Wells had been held captive prior to their escape the previous summer. The manner in which these girls died is absolutely atrocious. Before being murdered, both of the girls had been bound. It was found that their spinal cords were severed at the lumbar and cervical section. Several bones had also been completely severed with either a knife or a machete. After they died, their bodies had been decapitated. Place's remains sustained a gunshot wound from a 22 caliber pistol to her lower jaw. It was also found that either one or both victims were suspended from a banyan tree nearby long enough to leave welt impressions within the bark just before their deaths. The roots of the tree had several deep knife, machete, or axe incisions that also contained torn sections of clothing fibers. Also, this tree had the initials G.J. carved into the trunk. On April 5th, Dr. Richard Suviron identified the bodies as Place and Jessup using dental records and healed bone fractures. Shortly after discovering and identifying the victims, Schaefer was informed. He immediately requested a public defender. Due to the location of these discoveries, the victims' identities and the similarities of their abduction and murder led investigators in Martin County and Broward County to obtain search warrants for Schaefer's house and vehicle and for Schaefer's mother's house. At Schaefer's mother's house, police found 300 pages of lurid stories that were occasionally accompanied by crude illustrations, which Schaefer had penned or typed over several years. 
The stories detailed the kidnapping, humiliation, mutilation, rape, and execution by hanging of a number of teenage girls and young women who he would routinely refer to as whores, sluts, and harlots. He even named Belinda and Carmen, as well as another unidentified woman who he graphically described hanging at an unknown location close to Powerline Road. Several of these so-called stories indicated that Schaefer forced his victims to drink beer or wine as they stood upon makeshift plinths with a noose around their necks so he could observe them urinate before losing balance and hanging themselves. Schaefer penned about the pleasure he would receive as he watched the distressed women urinate and or defecate before or at the time of hanging. The writings revealed a fascination with historical methods of torture and execution. On an even more grotesque note, Schaefer would frequently return to the crime scenes weeks or months after the murders to commit acts of necrophilia with buried and dismembered bodies. He would even return to extract teeth from the skull. Officers also found 11 guns, bags filled with live and spent cartridges, 13 hunting knives, sections of rope, and numerous copies of softcore pornographic magazines, which Schaefer modified to depict nude urinating women bound with ropes, hanging from trees of other makeshift gallows, or having bullet wounds. There was also 37 black and white Polaroid photos depicting women being hung and or mutilated. It was speculated that these photographs were taken in an undergrowth area in Davie, Florida, but the focus of the images were too poor for investigators to identify the subjects. Within the collection of photographs was Schaefer, who was dressed in female garments, simulating his own hanging from a tree with fecal matter smeared across his butt. So this dude was into some some really weird stuff that it, it jumps over that line. It's just depraved. Amongst these items, a letter was found, which contained Polaroids also. The letter was from a person who lived in Australia and became an acquaintance of Schaefer's, who traveled with him in Morocco during the summer of 1970. The pictures were taken by Schaefer's travel companion of a village in the Sahara of a massacre of both Europeans and Arabs. Several of the disturbing images depicted women who had been extensively disemboweled and mutilated with knives and axes. Investigators also discovered mass amounts of personal items that belonged to several teenaged girls and young women contained in a gold jewelry box. It included jewelry, passports, and clothing. One of the items officers discovered included a gold locket inscribed with the name Lee. It was determined that it belonged to Lee Hanlon. A distinctive heart-shaped charm inscribed with the initials MTN 
was also recovered. However, investigators were unable to link the item to missing or murdered individuals. Other items in this box included Barbara Ann Wilcox's driver's license, Colette Goodenough's passport, as well as teeth and sections of bone, which were later identified as belonging to at least eight victims. The search in Martin County did not amount to the same physical evidence found in Broward County. Investigators managed to recover two human teeth stowed away in a plastic capsule inside the master bedroom, several knives and firearms inside a utility shed, and an extensively blood-stained white pillowcase which had been washed. It was also discovered that Schaefer's wife was in possession of Georgia Jessup's suede purse. His wife told officers that her husband had given her the purse as a gift in November the previous year. After learning of the discoveries of the bodies, he tried to persuade her to discard the item, stating that the police may use it as a way to make up some kind of evidence. By May 12th, there was more than enough physical and circumstantial evidence gathered to link Schaefer to nine murders and unsolved disappearances between 1969 and 1973. Within the same month, a newspaper reported a list of 28 murdered or missing persons who were believed to be linked to Schaefer. A press conference was held on May 14th where Chief Investigator Brumley Jr. stated, In terms of scope and bizarreness, this case was the biggest he had encountered in his career to date. On May 18th, Schaefer was formally charged with first-degree murder for place in Jessup. He was held without bond pending trial and transferred to Florida State Hospital in Chattahoochee to undergo 30 days of psychiatric examinations before returning to St. Lucie County Jail on June 20th. From the examinations, it was determined that Schaefer was an individual suffering from paranoia, psychosis, and acute sexual deviation. He also viewed himself as an eliminator of women he deemed immoral. However, he was still mentally fit to stand trial. Schaefer continuously protested his innocence during a circuit court hearing on June 21st. He claimed the accusations against him were a mistake and informed one reporter he remained confident that he would be exonerated. On September 17, 1973, Schaefer stood trial for the murders of Place and Jessup. Because these murders occurred during the time when the Supreme Court of Florida declared capital punishment unconstitutional in the state, prosecutors sought life imprisonment for Schaefer. He pled not guilty to the charges against him and frequently conveyed a distant and aloof demeanor throughout the official proceedings, often staring coldly at prosecution witnesses as they testified or turning to smile at members of the press when a witness testified for his counsel. The first witnesses to take the stand were the father and son who discovered the dismembered bodies. Place's parents also took the stand on the first day to formally identify Schaefer as the man who they had seen with their daughter and Georgia. 
George's parents and younger sister also formally identified the purse that was in Schaefer's wife's possession as belonging to Georgia. Also to testify were Nancy Trotter and Paula Wells as to their abduction and escape. Their testimony was also followed by a video presentation depicting the girls as they had been bound. Among the state's evidence was also the actual tree limbs the victims had been hung from and bore sections of wearing on the tree bark. Also, the tree roots that Place and Jessup were forced to balance upon were shown as evidence. Even a manuscript written by Schaefer detailed how to properly execute women was used as evidence. Schaefer's lawyer immediately called for his client's acquittal, claiming that the state did not prove their case against Schaefer and that all evidence presented was circumstantial. Thankfully, the court ruled against this notion. Following the closing arguments, the jury began their deliberations at 3.45 p.m. They deliberated for five hours and ten minutes before returning with two verdicts of first-degree murder. In the years following his conviction, Schaefer maintained his innocence in the Place and Jessup murders and denied his culpability in any others, insisting he was framed by what he termed overzealous prosecutors, corrupt law enforcement personnel. Although maintaining his innocence and claiming to have never met either girl, Schaefer frequently and falsely described Place and Jessup as heroin users, police informants, and promiscuous. He was also known to have insulted their parents. While incarcerated, Schaefer developed a reputation among his fellow inmates as detached and arrogant, who many suspected of being an informant to earn privileges from authorities. In the early years of his life in prison, he was put in solitary confinement for prison mail violations on more than one occasion. From time to time, he would try to persuade members of the public to mail him female undergarments. He spent much of his time devoted to correspondence and what he termed a new writing genre called killer fiction. Schaefer described this genre as one which does not glorify violence, but enables the reader to see the acts of murder and necrophilia in stark reality. Although he claimed these writings were fictional, many investigators believe these writings incorporate his own murders and assaults. Schaefer was transferred to the Avon Park Correctional Institute in 1983, where he started assisting authorities in obtaining sufficient evidence to secure the conviction of pedophile Marvin Eric Cross who had been discreetly operating an international softcore child pornography operation while incarcerated. The information Schaefer provided also resulted in the arrest and conviction of two individuals in Seattle and Los Angeles, one a schoolteacher. The seizure of thousands of indecent images of children across four states and cross being transferred to Florida State Prison and placed in solitary confinement, with his mail closely monitored. Schaefer was himself returned to Florida State Prison in August 1985. Schaefer also filed several frivolous lawsuits while incarcerated. 
One of these lawsuits was filed in 1993 against true crime writer Patrick Kendrick, who responded to a letter from Schaefer who pretended to be a college student using an outside contact. So Schaefer contacted the true crime writer Patrick Kendrick, pretending to be a college student seeking advice, which is very weird. In the letter, he was said to have been seeking advice as to how to overcome his intimidation when meeting the deadliest killer ever, who was believed to be worse than Ted Bundy. In response to this letter, Kendrick had responded, There was little reason to be intimidated by Schaefer, whom he described as a middle-aged, pale, and doughy wimp, who preyed on victims that were physically and psychologically weaker than him. After this response from Kendrick, Schaefer filed a $500,000 lawsuit, which was ultimately settled out of court. Kendrick agreed to provide Schaefer with a copy of the section of his manuscript, which contained the revised list of his proposed victims including those which Kendrick's research had revealed he could not have committed. Schaefer also sued true crime authors Sandra London, Colin Wilson, and Michael Newton, and former FBI agent Robert Ressler for describing him as a serial killer in printed works, which I found this very confusing. He bragged about murdering all of these people and was found to be guilty, but when someone said he was a serial killer, he would sue them. I mean, it kind of seemed like that was the title he was going for. So while incarcerated, he frequently encouraged speculation as to how many victims he had claimed, while simultaneously denying he had ever committed murder and claiming the numerous writings discovered at his mother's residence were purely fiction. On December 3rd, 1995, Schaefer was stabbed to death on the floor of his cell. He had been stabbed over 40 times about the face, head, neck, and body, with his throat also being slashed, his right eye destroyed, and several ribs fractured. His body was discovered after a fellow inmate informed staff of his death. According to prison officials and prosecutors, a 32-year-old fellow inmate named Vincent Faustino Rivera had killed Schaefer following an argument over who received the final cup of hot water from a dispenser days prior to his murder. Rivera was convicted of Schaefer's murder in 1999. He received 53 years and 10 months imprisonment added to the sentence of life plus 20 years. He was already serving for a double homicide committed in Tampa in 1990. Rivera never confessed to the crime, nor gave any motive for the murder. It is suspected Schaefer was killed for being a prison informant. As in the year prior to his murder, other inmates had repeatedly thrown human waste at him and twice set his cell on fire. Reportedly, Schaefer's classification officer confirmed that he was murdered in direct response to his leaking confidential information to authorities pertaining to a well-respected and powerful inmate. Upon hearing of Schaefer's death, the mother of victim Georgia Jessup informed the media she considered Schaefer's own murder a case of long-overdue justice, stating, I've always believed he was going to get this. I just wish it had been sooner rather than later. 
The judge who had presided over his murder trial remarked, He's finally gotten the death sentence he ultimately deserved but couldn't be given. At the time of Schaefer's death, Broward County investigators were in the process of preparing to bring further murder charges pertaining to three unsolved murders in part to ensure he would never be freed from prison. So no one really knows when or where Schaefer began killing. When Schaefer was killed in prison, the truth containing the true number of victims he murdered went with him. Author Patrick Kendrick believes Schaefer began killing in 1969, and his victim count is around 11. But the commonly held belief is that he may have claimed up to 28 lives. Here is a list of his alleged victims. Nancy Elaine Lickner, who was 21, and Pamela Ann Nader, who was 20, were last seen alive hiking in the Alexander Springs Wilderness Recreation Area of the Ocala National Forest. Authorities initially believed the two had drowned while swimming, but this theory was ultimately disproven. Schaefer later confessed to their murders. Lee Farrell Hanlon Bonatis, who was 24, was the newlywed waitress who had known Schaefer since both were teenagers. In April 1978, her skull, containing three bullet holes, was discovered at a construction site in Palm Beach County. Carmen Marie Halleck, 22, Halleck disappeared after informing her sister she had an appointment with a male teacher from Broward Community College, who may have been able to provide her with a government job. She was last seen wearing a black chiffon dress. One of the stories Schaefer is known to have penned prior to his arrest recounts the hanging and mutilation of a girl with auburn hair wearing a black chiffon dress two of Halleck's teeth and a gold shamrock pin belonging to her were found at Schaefer's home. Peggy Ran, who was nine, and Wendy Stevenson, eight, were last seen by relatives at Pompano Beach walking toward a parking lot to purchase ice cream cones. Their bodies have never been found. Several years after his conviction, Schaefer sent a letter to his girlfriend in which he confessed to killing the children. Several investigators dispute the authenticity of this confession, as the individual last known to have seen the girls alive had observed both girls still clad in their bathing suits in the company of a man whose physical description contrasted greatly with Schaefer's. Mard Ellen Malarick, who was 19, and Karen Lynn Farrell, who was 18, were two West Virginia University students last seen alive leaving a theater in Morgantown, West Virginia. Their decapitated bodies were discovered on April 16th. An inmate with an extensive history of providing false confessions provided a 35-page confession full of errors, confessing to their murders in 1976, and the validity of his confession is disputed. Obviously, it was disputed because he always provided false confessions, so no one was going to believe him anyway. The evidence linking Schaefer to their murders is circumstantial, and he was formally cleared as a suspect in 1982. Belinda Hutchins, who was 22, 
was the married cocktail waitress with a 10-month-old daughter. Hutchins is known to have briefly dated Schaefer shortly after his application to serve with the Broward County Police Department. She was last seen entering a blue Datsun parked outside her home. Police later recovered an address book identified as belonging to Hutchins and containing the name Jerry Shepard from Schaefer's home. Deborah Sue Lowe, who was 13, was last seen walking to Rickards Middle School. Her school books were later discovered in a trash bin one block from her home. Her body was never found. Lowe's family strongly believes Schaefer, who had worked with her father and previously visited the Lowe household, was involved in her disappearance. Bonnie Taylor, who was 20, was a Wilton Manors resident whom Schaefer is known to have stopped for a speeding violation shortly before her March 19, 1972 disappearance. No further information on this case exists. Leonard Joseph Massar was 46. He was last seen alive at a Riviera Beach, Florida bar. His handless body was discovered buried on Hutchinson Island on January 3rd, 1973, close to where Schaefer had bound and threatened Trotter and Wells. No direct evidence exists to indicate Schaefer's culpability in this murder or the murder of any male. However, Schaefer is known to have referenced Massar's murder in correspondence following his murder conviction. Elizabeth Renee Wilt was a native to Fayetteville, Arkansas, who had traveled to Florida to attend the 1972 Republican National Convention. Her last contact with her stepmother was a letter dated August 30th, postmarked Miami Beach in which she indicated she would be returning to Arkansas. Wilt's body has never been found. Mary Alice Bruscalina, who was 14, and Elsie Lena Farmer, who was 13, were the two girls that disappeared while hitchhiking to a restaurant. Their decapitated bodies were found by construction workers buried 600 feet apart. Mary was found on January 17th, and Elsie was found on February 15th. A distinctive gold chain and Madonna medal belonging to Briscolina were later found in Schaefer's jewelry box. Suzanne Gale Poole, who was 15, was a Fort Lauderdale teenager reported missing by her family shortly before Christmas in 1972. Her partial skeletal remains were recovered on June 16, 1974, bound to a mangrove tree in a swampland district of Singer Island. The remains were identified in May 2022 using genetic genealogy. The circumstances of her disappearance and murder led authorities to believe she may have been a victim of Schaefer, who had been temporarily freed from court one day before the estimated date of Poole's disappearance. Colette Marie Goodenough, who was 19, and Barbara Ann Wilcox, who was also 19, were both native to Cedar Rapids, Iowa. They also both disappeared while hitchhiking from Sioux City to Florida, just days before Schaefer began serving his jail sentence for the abductions of Trotter and Wells. Personal property identified as belonging to both women were later recovered from Schaefer's home. 
Their bound bodies were discovered along a canal bank in St. Lucie County in January 1977. Both victims were formally identified using dental records on January 8, 1978. The upper portion of Goodenough's skull was never found. The story of Gerard John Schaefer serves as a harrowing reminder of the depths of human depravity. His personal life, gruesome murders, subsequent legal proceedings, and ultimate demise paint a horrifying portrait of a serial killer who instilled fear and despair in the hearts of many. Through studying such cases, we hope to shed light on the motivations and complexities that drive individuals to commit such heinous acts of violence. Diving into the twisted mind of Gerard Schaefer Jr. was shocking and a bit confusing for me. And I mean, confusing because he obviously fits the definition of serial killer, but sued everyone who called him one. He was confirmed to have murdered two victims on September 27, 1972. However, it is suspected by authorities that his crimes span from 1966 to 1973, with a victim count ranging from 2 to 28 plus. What are your thoughts about this case? Do you think his death was long overdue? Leave a comment with your thoughts. Also, remember to follow, subscribe, or leave a review so you can hear more bizarre cases from around the world with me, Tams, and Lee. Thank you for listening, stay safe, and I will see you for the next episode. Bye!